Welcome to the Real Estate Addicts Podcast. This is episode 58 with your hosts, uh, Mark Savatsky from Choose Boston. Dan Rubin, HRV Homes. And Ray Herto, HRV Homes. And we're joined today by our guests. Josh Lakeham, uh, Executive Director, Housing Forward Mass. And Jenny Schutz, Brookings Institution. Super. This is the first time we've had two guests on together. So um, episode took 58 episodes, but we're excited to do it. We're excited to have you join us. We just said that it's been uh, every couple weeks since we're releasing. So, Mark, why are we combining guests? Why are we not milking this for more episodes? Well, <laughs> this there was a lot of good synergies between the work Jenny's doing at the Brookings Institute and uh, Josh and Housing Forward. Um, and so I thought it would be a great t- opportunity for everyone to get on the line here and compare notes. But um, Josh, first, you look great post, uh, post-politics, the boxing gloves, uh, you know, the casual button down today. Yeah, it's been a while. I actually had a, a socially distanced wedding for my sister-in-law two weeks ago. It was the first time I put a suit on uh, in almost <laughs> a year. It was a close call on whether it would fit or not, but, uh, but we made it. You know, it is, uh, it's, it's been an interesting time. Uh, it's certainly an interesting time to transition to a new role, uh, start a new organization. But, um, you know, as you guys know, and Jenny will talk about also, it's a really timely opportunity uh, with some of the challenges facing uh, Greater Boston and Massachusetts uh, in the housing space, in the development area, an opportunity to make a real difference. So I'm excited to be here and talk about it. And, you know, if you guys need some content for future episodes, uh, also, I don't want to speak for, for Jenny, but uh, I'll certainly happy to come back and, and talk some more about what we're doing down the road. Definitely. Maybe kickboxing too. Who knows? Sure. Go a lot of directions, Josh. Okay, we'll go out in the park. We'll hold the mitts. We'll have a good time. Let's do it. And, uh, and Jenny, thank you too for joining us. We uh, enjoyed your new report on transit-oriented housing. And um, we've certainly had some, uh, some guests on like Ed Glazer from Harvard and some urban planners, but um, really happy to have you as, 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 very, as very much an expert. So I'll let you just introduce yourself quickly if you wouldn't mind and talk a little about the work that you're doing uh, with the Brookings Institute. So we, uh, I, I study housing, and actually, this is sort of a, a loop back for me. I worked with Ed Glazer when I was in grad school, and a mere 14 years ago, we put out a report on how terrible zoning was in greater Boston, especially in the suburbs, and is really impeding markets from building enough housing to meet demand and low-cost housing in the right places. This year, we just put out a brand new report yesterday, joint with the Boston Indicators, um, that's a, a little bit more of a concrete proposal. So we kind of know that zoning is a problem. We know the things that local governments are doing that isn't working. And so we're putting out a, a fairly bold proposal. I think it's fair to say that the state should essentially take over zoning around transit stations. Um, we look particularly at commuter rail stations, but you can throw in um, obviously the T and even potentially bus rapid transit. The idea is that the state should basically legalize moderate density housing around all transit stations so that you can get the most use out of this really valuable land that's within a half mile of transit stations. We should be able to build more homes there at a wider range of prices so that more people can live there, more people can walk to train stations, more people can get into some of these really high opportunity communities, which essentially aren't building any housing and have a median home value of over a million dollars. And I just want to you know, follow up on that and say that Jenny and, and her co-authors of this study did an outstanding job. Um, and it just identifying the issue, doing it, I think, in a constructive way and, and providing real concrete answers 
and suggestions for fixing it is not something you often have seen in this space. Um, it's really it's one of the things that that Housing Forward really wants to do and to be launching, you know, in a similar time as this, you know, sort of landmark report and proposal comes out. I think puts a lot of wind in our sails and in the sails of you know other pro housing advocates and activists uh, in Massachusetts. And I'm optimistic. It seems like from an ephemeral or an intellectual standpoint, we read these reports and it's it's obvious what we need to do, but yet the po- the politics of it are so difficult. So, Josh, as a former city councilor and uh, recovering politician, tell us your take on on what what makes this so difficult. Well, I think you've identified a real important issue there, and it's one of the reasons that we created Housing Forward is that you know there are organizations like Brookings, uh, the Boston Foundation other research institutions that are putting out this incredible, these incredible proposals, doing this incredible research, and there's still that gap between getting it enacted. There's a big disconnect, I think, between people across Massachusetts who say they want to create greener communities, more socially, racially, economically diverse communities. And then when they're given the opportunity to do that by supporting transit-oriented development, slightly denser multifamily development, you know, there's a lot of pushback. So what we'd like to do at Housing Forward is create an infrastructure uh, and a support for what I think is a huge number of people who do feel that they want to make those changes and support these changes, but don't have the tools to do it yet. Whether that means identifying relevant elected officials or your local zoning board, your city councilor, all the way up to the governor um, and learning how to craft your narrative and you know, get up and speak at a public hearing, which is not the easiest thing to do, uh, especially if you don't do it often, especially if you're new to this. Um, but there's been a real awakening, I believe, uh, around social justice, around climate and environmental justice. And while a lot of that's rightfully focused on what's happening in Washington, and you know, be remiss if I didn't say how important the election in November is going to be to all the issues we're talking about. They've made it a presidential issue as of late, too. Exactly. All the talk about destroying suburbia. I mean, that's that there's code words uh, in between the lines. Exactly. And it, and that certainly makes it a challenge for the work we're trying to do. But there's also an opportunity for anyone. You know, there I know a lot of folks are calling voters in swing states and writing postcards, and I applaud that. And that's incredibly important. But you can also do that in your own community to support more trans-oriented development, to support more development that's going to be open to people of various incomes. As Jenny was saying, I, I may be misquoting the number, but I think you said 1.3 million was the average home price in some of the areas you were looking at, relatively close to trans. I mean, that has an impact. There is a history and intentionality of uh, the way zoning was written, um, not just in Massachusetts, around the country, uh, that we have to reckon with, but that there's an opportunity to, to do better. As far as transit-oriented development, what is what is your sensed on what the radius should be around the transit stops and whatnot and and how you know does it does it go does the density go up as you get closer or is it kind of a blanketed area how does that how does that detail work yeah so i mean the research mostly shows that people are willing to walk about a half mile for sort of a regular commute. So if you walk to the subway or to the commuter rail, sort of a half mile is what most people are willing to do. So that's kind of the most important area to focus on. It varies a little bit by what's around the station, sort of what the density patterns will look like. So for instance, some of the commuter rail stations, 
are in the midst of like a little Main Street commercial area, that's actually a great use to have nearby. You could imagine maybe putting a couple levels of apartments on top of the existing commercial, but you wouldn't necessarily need to like tear down all the stuff that's there. Some of them really are surrounded by just, you know, sort of single family homes on very large lots, in which case you're probably going to want to do a complete redevelopment. And that gives you a chance maybe to do something a little bit taller, a little bit bigger. The report that we did, we were trying to come up with kind of the, the parameters for a statewide zoning that would work in a whole bunch of places. And so we were modeling targets of townhouses at about eight units per acre or multifamily at about 20 units an acre which is not that dense for sort of the urban core. Um, in fact, a lot of places that are closer into Boston are already above those thresholds. But those are targets that would be reasonable in you know, sort of suburban areas. So Wellesley was one of our case studies, Needham. Those are some targets that would really work in a lot of places that are currently single family and can be done in less than four stories, right? So height is one of the things that makes people freak out when you start talking about density, but you can get a lot of units without going tall. And as you guys know, the construction costs, once you get above six stories, become really expensive. So realistically, we're talking about low to mid-rise multifamily and working with the existing infrastructure too, right? There are some places that maybe have some commercial space that could be converted, some older industrial spaces, especially in the gateway cities. It's really about trying to get just as much housing in that immediate half-mile radius where sort of you have the highest demand, land values are highest, and that's where you really want to maximize the number of people who have proximity to transit. Yeah. And it was interesting in your report that a lot of those uh, municipalities in those more desirable uh, areas, as you got closer to housing, it wasn't the case that there was more dense uh, housing. It was almost the opposite. And so it's, it's kind of a shame. It's, uh, it's a public good and the public doesn't necessarily have access to it. You can imagine a world where we really didn't have density limits. What you would see is taller buildings right on top of the station and very close in, and then sort of a gradual decrease in density, maybe moving to like some row houses and then single family detached further away. But if you look at some of the maps, it's big single family homes on big lots right up to the station, you know, across from the station, and there's essentially no variation. That's one of the tip-offs that this is really not a market outcome. This is a regulatory outcome. This is entirely driven by the laws that are in place. And this is very much pushing back against what the market wants to build and what lots of people would like to live in if it were available. I think it's an important point, though, that Jenny's making is that this is not about saying we want skyscrapers you know, everywhere. We want 20-story buildings everywhere. It's Let's be a little more thoughtful. Um, there's absolutely a place for single-family detached homes in our ecosystem. Those are great options for folks. But if we're going to have massive public investment in transit, as there should be, we need to, I think, do a little bit of uh, updating uh, of our land use regulations to allow the greatest number of people to use that and have those broader impacts on climate, on the economy. And it's really simple. I mean, the answers are there. They put, the, they put this out there just this week. Other people have been talking about this and will continue talking about this, but it's getting across the finish line on the policy level. And I just want to, you know, shout out the housing choice bill um, that's still up at the state house that seems pretty simple, would make it a simple majority instead of a two-thirds majority on local zoning boards to make these changes. And it's still stalled up there. Um, you know, we have a real, a real challenge in this space to adjust these land use regulations and make a little more, a little denser, a little greener development possible. 
So Josh, you, you know, you know, as well as we do, as you were, you were in the city, the public has such clout in so many of these developments in Boston. I mean, how do you get around that process? Just because it's just, it's so drawn out. And I think there's been as much as we think there's been a ton of development in the city and there has been, I think people are so fed up with development in their neighborhoods or their backyards that they're coming out in force. And, you know, we're, you know, I'm selfishly talking, you know, we we're going through a small three unit development now that's a quarter mile from a subway stop. And we're getting pushback that we don't have enough parking and, you know, all the typical things that, that we get you know, pushed back with. Sorry. It's pronounced parking. Packing. And so how do you kind of get around the public input process that is currently ingrained in a lot of these municipalities to kind of start pushing things through? The public input is important. And I, I think it's in many ways it has helped projects improve, but there needs to be, I think, voices on both sides. And more often than not, um, and I believe it was, a, it was a BU study not that long ago that analyzed the demographics of who was showing up at these meetings to oppose projects. And it was overwhelmingly whiter, wealthier, and older than the community at large. So I think there needs to be a better effort to make sure that get a more representative discussion, that it should be you know having renters have a seat at the table, younger people, folks who may be newer to a neighborhood and not fully uh, active in a civic association. And I will say one, at least anecdotally, bright spot that I've seen about um, the pandemic and moving things to Zoom as we're doing right now is that it has somewhat democratized, a little d, democratized those meetings. But another important solution, though, is what Jenny is proposing and her colleagues about just setting real rules that are applicable. One of the challenges is, and when I was a city councilor here, I would often hear this from constituents, is that because there isn't predictability in the process, they didn't know whether this one big building was the last one on the block or the first of seven that were going to you know, be all over their communities. So we need to be, we need predictability. And that's on the policy side of things. But on the sort of political, for lack of a better word, or public input side, we need to be providing tools to folks who, whether you want to call them YIMBYs, pro-development, pro-housing activists, to be there and speak up at these meetings, to know what the process is about, which obviously, you know, the folks hear us on the phone, this is, uh, this is what we do. But there are a lot of people who, if they knew, you know, you could be making a better, smaller carbon footprint in their neighborhood. You could be creating a more diverse neighborhood. You could be creating a neighborhood of more various incomes. They would want to show up at the meeting and support that. And that's one of the things that Housing Forward Mass is going to offer. Uh, we're actually scheduling our first, it'll be virtual, obviously, training session in mid-November on how to identify the relevant public officials for an issue that you're thinking about, how to craft your narrative, how to speak, speak to them, how to contact them, and how to speak up at community meetings. And I think that's something that's really been lacking in this space. I completely agree. I mean, I know, Mark, the three of us always go back and forth on is the unpredictability in the zoning process a good thing or a bad thing? And there's both sides of the camp. But I mean, as a developer, I would love to know black and white, can I do it or can I not do it? And because there's so much ambiguity in what 
may get approved one. It may not get approved. You know, I could have the same exact building. I could just copy and paste the building that was done three houses down that got approved, but I might not get approved. So it's just having more predictability, I completely agree, is is very important, both on on the public side and the private side, you know? Yeah, yeah. I should say we, we see a couple of big advantages in the state getting involved with this to provide some consistency and predictability across jurisdictions, right? So one of the, the upshots of the current process is that local governments write the rules, local governments enforce the rules, and the process is driven by and large by people who already live in the community. So the really affluent communities write more restrictive rules, but also their residents are the ones who show up at community meetings. And, you know, there are homeowners who are deeply invested in their property values and keeping things the way they are, and in some cases, keeping people out of their kids' schools who they don't want there. So, you know, the, the current residents of Wellesley want to keep Wellesley exactly the way it is forever, and that's totally understandable. But there are a bunch of people who can't live in Wellesley now because they can't afford a million-dollar house. They'd love to be able to live there in a townhouse or an apartment, They'd love to be able to send their kids to public school there. They can't really show up at a public meeting in Wellesley and argue in favor of an apartment complex that doesn't yet exist because they're not residents. They're right. not on the neighborhood listserv, yeah. right? So if the state gets involved and makes more consistent rules, at least in these areas around transit, right, where the public has already invested in the transit infrastructure, the public has an interest in having that used, if you have consistent rules, at least in this part of the community, then you're giving a voice to people who don't yet live in the community, but would like to. Absolutely. Yeah, I completely agree that you, you know, to both of your points, all you hear is kind of the negatives side or the opposition. And, you know, Josh, to your point, how do we get the people who, whether they abstain or they do don't, or they don't mind, you know, development in their community, how do you get them more involved? You know, I, I hate to say it, but it's it's kind of like the squeaky squeaky wheel gets the grease, I guess. Probably not the best analogy. I did have one question in terms of, you know, let's say we wave a magic wand and this this is implemented because Boston itself is notorious and unique in it in its own with respect to zoning. So obviously we basically are getting entitlement via zoning since almost everything is non-compliant and everything else in the state. Uh, and generally around the country is the opposite. You get zoning relief in in rare circumstances. So say this thing gets enabled, two parts. We have a 40, the state has a 40B program, which requires affordable housing uh, minimums as a percentage of the housing stock, uh, as I understand it. And if this were put in place, it sounds like when you were mentioning at the start that the buildings are not necessarily going to be affordable, quote unquote, in a similar sense as the 40B program, it would be more mixed. Can you speak a little bit more to that, Jenny? We intentionally were trying to run the numbers for unsubsidized market rate buildings because it's just easier to get the financing to work. The city of Boston is a whole other kettle of fish. You're right, it's sort of outside their regular jurisdiction. The other thing is that the density thresholds that we were thinking about probably would wouldn't wouldn't change what's on the ground in Boston already, right? Boston, Cambridge, parts of Somerville, they're already above these sort of minimum density thresholds. Um, so in a sense, you'd have to have kind of a two-tiered system for this even to, to matter in a lot of the urban core. You know, I don't know how you get around sort of that there aren't clear-cut rules that everything is done, you know, it's discretionary and, you know, everything requires variances. That's going to be a complicated question to figure out. 
On the affordability issue, so what we were looking to see is how much how much housing could you build around these stations at what price point without needing a subsidy on the construction side. But then we also looked at if you were to build these, we were actually modeling these as homeownership, but if you were to do these as rental properties, are the monthly costs anywhere in the range of what you could use a housing voucher for? And the Boston area, depending on how in the weeds you guys want to get, is sort of Boston uses small area FMRs. So the fair market rent for vouchers is actually set at the zip code level, meaning that in expensive zip codes, the voucher will cover a higher rental unit. Um, and so, you know, if the four stations we looked at, Wellesley and Needham are the most expensive markets, they have the highest fair market rent based on the zip code. And the rents there are actually high enough that they would probably cover, you know, a two-bedroom condo or two-bedroom apartment in these multifamily buildings. So although these are not affordable units attached to the unit, you could actually get low-income households to rent those by making more vouchers available. That's also a really important component. If you can get more rental housing into communities that have basically no rental housing, and if the rents are low enough that you could give household subsidies and let them move in, that opens up a whole part of the metro area that's essentially off limits to low-income renters without having to come up with the hard subsidy dollars up front for construction, which is just enormously expensive, right? And then you're adding on extra soft costs with light tech and so forth. So build the housing as efficiently and cheaply as you can, and then give households vouchers to be able to go in. It's funny that this can't, is, is having a very difficult time getting done, this being the legislation, because, you know, Jenny, you're from the Brookings Institute. The Brookings Institute tends to be a little bit more conservative financially. Josh, certainly more uh, coming from, from the left liberal uh, leaning politics of Boston. And yet we all agree on this. And why can't we get consensus? It's, it's frustrating. Um, <laughs> That's what we're here to fix. That's why we have this, this podcast not, episode. It, <laughs> Let's get it out there to get the message yeah. out. This is not unique to Massachusetts. I mean, one of the one of the pieces in the report that we're hoping is useful to people like Josh on the ground is putting sort of some national context. A bunch of states across the country, particularly on the West Coast, have been thinking about a bigger state role in land use planning. The state has an interest in sort of the local labor market working well and cutting across some of these jurisdictional boundaries and encouraging more growth. So, you know, California has been trying for three years now to get something similar to this through their legislature. And it gets a little bit farther every year, but it keeps getting stuck in committee because the legislators who represent really affluent suburbs don't want to vote for this stuff in Sacramento. Oregon managed to pass a statewide zoning law that essentially allows duplexes, triplexes, and quads in most single-family neighborhoods across the state. That was a big deal, and they spent several years organizing, trying to get you know, tenant unions and the home builders, environmental groups, really sort of a whole bunch of different political coalitions who had different incentives to get behind this. And it's both a matter of you know, the, the political log rolling, figuring out who's likely to support this, and tweaking legislation so that it covers things that they're particularly interested in but you know, building support for a big statewide change in something as fundamental as you know housing markets, that takes a lot of work and it takes boots on the ground and really knowing what your local political factions are. And, and I think it's also a critical point though that I, I, I know I mentioned it before, is that you know, when we're talking about increased density, whether it's in transit stations or just you know in communities at large, we're not talking about the large apartment buildings that you're seeing in Cambridge, Boston. 
Somerville in every case. We're talking about, you know, tweaking it. Um, you know, you mentioned Portland, which it did a great job and a single family lot and the housing stock in Portland. I haven't been there, but my understanding is a lot of that city is, you know, single family homes on their own lots. And by allowing them to make those triple deckers, which are sort of the classic Boston housing stock, that was the classic Boston family middle-class housing stock for generations to be built on these places. You're not dramatically increasing the footprint physically of these buildings. You're not adding dramatic height, but you are taking a huge step though towards creating a greener, more equitable community. And you know these are small things. We're not reinventing the wheel here. We're not upending communities. Um, there's a place for all these forms of housing, but you know, as Jenny's report showed and she was mentioning earlier, these are regulatory restrictions. They're not market-based and they're not serving us. You know, for a community that says we care about climate justice, racial and economic justice, economic development, keeping the workforce here in the Commonwealth, especially in the era of uh, increased remote work, you know, whatever this pandemic looks like a year from now and hopefully look a lot better, but remote work is still going to be dramatically increased than it has been. If we want to keep companies growing here, we want employees to work here, they need to have these options. Because why wouldn't they say, I'm going to go move to you know South Carolina or Texas or Utah? I love skiing. I'm going to go move to Utah and work remotely. These impact all areas of our society. When Ed Glazer was on the podcast, he uh, we, we were talking about uh, affordable housing set-asides uh, in market rate projects, and he seemed to have some contempt for that policy. He said that uh, it's almost an out for politicians to be able to uh, hang their hat on this. Oh, we have four new units in this building and three in that building. Um, Jenny, do you agree and do you think that it's fair for sort of the government to put that onus and that responsibility for affordable housing on the backs of private companies and, and, and people developing housing? I've actually looked at some data on inclusionary zoning programs in kind of the Boston region. Um, and I would say that Ed is right, that it hasn't been effective at producing a lot of units. And some of that is there are a bunch of places that don't really want to build affordable housing, but because of 40B, they sort of feel like they need to make a gesture towards it. So they'll adopt an inclusionary zoning ordinance without actually intending to build this. And then it's sort of like, hey, we created this IZ program, but developers choose not to use it or, you know, it just doesn't work out. But it kind of makes them look better without really changing the intent. There are some places that have gotten a decent number of units out of this. But it, it really only works. The, the deals only pencil in places where market rate rents are high, right? So Cambridge can require developers to do uh, below market set-asides, and the developers can raise the market rate rents on the rest of the units enough to cover the cost gap. But in most places, you just can't do that, right? And so financially, it can often just kill a deal. That's especially true for a smaller projects. If you're building a 100-unit apartment building and you have a 10% set-aside, that's really different than a 10% set-aside in you know, a six-unit building. Right. Um, and so I, I think that there's some good-faith local governments that want to make this work and don't understand the math, some that are really in bad faith and are, in fact, using this to deter developments. All right? if, you, if you set a 30% threshold for low-income units, it's going to kill almost any project, and you can look virtuous while killing stuff that you don't really want in the first place. Um, so I think Ed, Ed is right that this is not a terribly effective program, and we sort of put a lot of hopes that that was going to solve the affordable housing need, the affordable housing shortage, and it just hasn't. So at some point, we have to be realistic 
if we've been trying this for 20 years and it hasn't produced a lot of housing, it's also going to be really ineffective in kind of a slow market like we have now. You don't want to make housing construction more expensive at a time that the market is already feeling cautious and that there's a lot of uncertainty. So in many ways, this just acts like a tax on new development, which is absolutely the last thing that a place like Boston needs. Absolutely. Yeah, 30 percent of thirty uh, percent of nothing is not a big number. Um, I, I do think the inclusion and development policies for all their uh, troubles in a city like Boston or New York, uh, you know, Cambridge, those high market areas, they've had a positive impact. But it's also illustrates, I think, the challenge that local and even state governments have with a lack of resources for housing. You know, a generation ago, the federal government gave significant resources, whether it was direct subsidies, vouchers, tax credit. I mean, they were in the game. And if and that's for you know affordable, low income, deed restricted, et cetera. And that's not happening right now. So one of the things that you know sort of drives housing forwards ethos our operations is that we think increasing the supply, you know, at all levels of the market is what's going to help address these housing affordability issues, whether we're talking about in the city of Boston, we're talking about in Wellesley, Framingham, you know, further west on the Cape, whatever it is. And a big part of that is easing some of these unnecessary restrictions, making these processes not last a year and a half or two years for small and mid-sized projects. Now, listen, you want to look at Suffolk Downs, that massive development that needs to have, you know, projects like that. Okay. Long community process, a lot of meetings, be very thoughtful, but for someone who's doing a nine or 10 unit project to have to go through similar, although I wouldn't say quite as extensive, it just deters people. I think from investing, it raises the cost if you have to do that. And where we can still have thoughtful development, respecting neighborhoods, respecting communities, uh, we need to be supporting that. Yeah, we can certainly attest to that. We had an urban planner on earlier, Brian Gregory, and he shared a story or an anecdote that I thought was interesting. He said that, you know, one of the biggest challenges with uh, the NIMBYism comes from, from the communities is that we just don't live long enough. He said that if you were around for 250 years, this proposal popping up, you'd go, oh yeah, cool. It's but it's just that, um, you know, because if you lived in Dorchester 100 years ago, it was all horse farms. So it's decidedly different today. But you have this very myopic view of the world on account that we are here and we're in one place for so short a time. Mm-hmm. So I'm not sure that's even Mark, Mark that's, oh, man, I wish I could say that at some of these public meetings. Like everyone who's against new housing, where did your housing come from? Because Boston is not going to stop changing. And it, and it, came from, like you said, open farmland for the most part, or fill. So Mm -hmm. I'm curious, uh, this might be a little off topic, but there's been a, I think we've all kind of seen it like this flight to the suburbs, or at least people talking about it. Do we think that that's real? And is that going to stay? Or do we think that that's going to kind of reverse once we have a vaccine or something else positive happens with respect to the, to the virus itself and, and this threat of living in a city and a dense dense area uh, goes away and things can reopen and we can bring all of these restaurants hopefully back and, and the nightlife and all that good stuff that, that brings us to the city. I guess the question is, do we think that how permanent are some of these effects that we're seeing right now from, from COVID and what impact would that have on demand for rentals and, and living in the city if, if it's really bad? I hope it's temporary. I'm trying to sell my condo in Back Bay right now, so I hope it's very temporary. But um, I think there's not much 
to compare it to. This is a somewhat singular event, certainly in American history. Um, you know, you go back over 100 years um, to the last time. I mean, there have been other shocks to urban economies. Obviously, you know, September 11th attacks were a little more recent uh, with a lot of people saying, you know, downtowns are not going to come back. People are not going to want to work or live in high rises. But, you know, there is a human need over thousands of years to be around people. How we recover from this thoughtfully and mentioning restaurants, small local businesses. I want to applaud Governor Baker, who just uh, today or yesterday announced a significant, at least $700 plus million fund to support small businesses during this time. I would wish I could be applauding the federal government for also writing another big check on that front. They are not doing that right now. Hopefully, we'll see some progress on that. But it's going to be, it, we need to be deliberate about it. There is that human desire to be around community, uh, to be able to walk to amenities. And I think that will come back, whether that's in six months or 12 or 24. You know, I think that'll come back. But we do need to be advocating. This isn't directly on housing, but we do need to be advocating to support the restaurant industry, which is not only critical to quality of life, in my mind, it's critical to the economy. One of the biggest employers in Massachusetts, small retail. Are we going to want to come wake up in a year? and only see you know, Amazon vans, Targets, and Walmarts, and big national steakhouse chains in our restaurant spaces. I mean, we need to be deliberate about this. Um, and that, I think, calls for everyone to, to speak up at the federal level, at the state, and the city level. Jenny, what are your thoughts? I think there are two kinds of shifts in where people live at the moment, and it's not clear whether either of them are temporary or permanent. One is people moving out of small small places, small apartments in the city into suburbs of the same city because they want more space. And a lot of this is just, you know, particularly families with kids who are probably going to do that anyway. So there's a lot of like, I was going to move out in a year, in two years. I'm going to go ahead and take the plunge now. That's not a fundamental change in behavior. It's just speeding things up a little bit. The other one that I think Boston may be vulnerable to is if people don't need to work in the main office, companies start moving headquarters to smaller cities, to cheaper places, or allowing really you know, permanent remote work, then why should you pay Boston rents when you could have three times the space in a really nice neighborhood in Nashville or Austin, right? Or in Salt Lake City and go skiing. Um, and so the, the really expensive cities, I think, are vulnerable to these moves to kind of lower cost, but high quality of life places and again, that's not new. We've been seeing that for the last 10 years already, but that may speed up quite a bit. On the other hand, if we wind up in a like work from home three days a week, but still go into the office two days a week, people aren't going to leave Boston and move to Nashville to fly back for two days. Um, so it, it's still really early to figure out what the long-term work trends are going to be like, especially for white-collar office workers. Um, so I, I think we still don't know yet. Yeah, that's fair. I I, I would agree with that. And I don't think people want to work from home as much as we are right now. I'm pretty sure that the the patience is running out. So, hey, we all survived the, uh, well, those who did survive the 1918 pandemic, you know, society survived and cities obviously grew. So obviously it's just a matter of, of time and not a matter of if, I would say. I also, I also think, especially in a city like Boston, where there's so much education, I feel that a lot of the younger generation, regardless of their job situation, they don't want to live in the suburbs or they don't want to live somewhere more suburban. They want to be around other young people and they want to 
have that connection and meet other young people. So I think that's where cities like Boston do thrive. And, and we are seeing the effects of it. I think that so many students have not come back this year that it is affecting the rental market significantly. You are seeing a lot more vacancies this year than you have in the past. So it'll be interesting to see where all those trends kind of ultimately lead to. But if all these students, these tens of thousands of students all of a sudden come back, I feel that you're going to, you know, the, the rental market in, in the in the city, at least in Boston, will go back to where it was pre-pandemic. I think betting on college students and 20-somethings wanting to go to bars and hang out with friends is yeah. a friend. So, yeah, I think Boston's still a good future. I feel like the only positive from COVID has been, like, the reduced traffic. It's just much easier to commute right now. If they're trying, trying to think of another positive COVID, <laughs> I've had a lot more Domino's pizza. I don't know. Um, <laughs> My dog loves the work from home trend. He's okay with that <laughs> yeah. sticking around forever. Right. So my, my last question or comment, Jenny, is for you. Just um, seems like in, in the absence of a clear policy or legislation like the one that you've described, what we've seen in Boston has just been a and other cities is a very strong executive, namely a mayor. And I think Tom Menino was the example of that. And now even even with the current administration, it seems like the city policies are designed in a way to just give almost like I don't know that there's any other politician in an elected office that has as much independent so say as a mayor in a city oftentimes. Is that an accurate statement? Is that a fair statement? Is that something that's adopted because there hasn't been clear uh, legislation on this? And what are your thoughts? Yeah, that that varies a lot across cities. And Boston and New York have what the political scientists call strong mayor systems. So the mayor has a lot of authority and can set a lot of the rules you know, has a lot of authority to kind of set policy. And Mike Bloomberg in New York did a lot with the city zoning. But, you know, one of the one of the constraints for the Boston region is the city of Boston is not that big a part of the metro area, right? You've got a bunch of other kind of satellite cities. You've got lots of small suburbs. And so the city of Boston can't drive the region's housing policy in the way that, say, the city of Los Angeles could drive the LA region, right? Because it's just so much bigger. Um, and that that is one of the reasons we think state action is important because you've got to solve this collective action problem with lots of jurisdictions who individually say, I don't want to allow more housing. I don't want to build higher density because I'll just absorb everything as long as my neighbors don't also move in this direction, right? So the state coming in gives cover to mayors, gives cover to local governments who maybe want to do this, but can't move on their own because of their residents or worried about this coordinating with their neighbors, you know, so I, I would love to see a governor, I would love to see a coalition of state legislators who come together and say, we're going to work together on this, like, we're going to own it, we're going to take credit, um, and we're really going to move the region in the right direction. I'm hoping there's also a little bit of friendly competition between the East Coast and the West Coast. California and Oregon are kind of kicking the East Coast butts on when it comes to housing, um, and it's time for the East Coast to get itself going. Good point. Uh, on that topic of... Um... I guess Mark's to piggyback on Mark's thing about mayoral items. So we're going to have a mayoral race next year. And as of right now, it looks like we'll have at least two candidates, possibly three, I guess, depending on the election and depending on some of these rumors that I've heard going around about if our mayor gets taken for some position there. 
Josh, we'll throw it to you. What, what are your thoughts on the mayoral race coming up? Do you see more candidates coming in? Any Anybody stand out to you? Well, I would expect there'll be one more formal candidate. Now. <laughs> that would be the incumbent. Um, yeah. you know, I, think, uh, I think Mayor Walsh has done, has done a really great job and certainly was a pleasure to, to work with during my time on the city council um, and my two former colleagues uh, who are also running and I think bring uh, incredible resumes, uh, life stories and assets to the race. Um, you know, having a vibrant debate is good for the city. It's good for the region. And it certainly is potentially have a huge impact on the issues we're talking about. But, you know, as Jenny was mentioning a second ago, Boston is actually, well, uh, sorry, I'm, I'm going to put words in your mouth. So I'm just going to say what, I, what I'm saying. You know, although Boston is geographically relatively small, in many ways, we do lead the way, whether it's economically, culturally uh, in the region. And Boston's actually been doing a pretty good job. I mean, for all the, the headaches when it comes to zoning, for the challenges that have been put in place around development, Boston has been building quite a bit. On the affordable housing front, Boston, um, and to some extent also Cambridge and Somerville, are really building. It's a lot of the other communities, which militates toward Jenny and her, uh, her colleague's proposal for statewide policy, are just not. Um, you know, you bump up into Brookline, which in any other place would be another neighborhood of Boston. And it's dramatically different. So, so that's a challenge. And I do think that whoever the mayor of Boston is moving forward has an opportunity to take a leadership role. And, and Mayor Walsh has convened regional mayors uh, and elected officials to try and do that. And one thing that I think you know, Housing Forward can do is help provide and activate supporters of these policies, people who want to make these changes, give them the tools, tell them, here's what you can do on your own. You know, we're a nonpartisan organization, but we want to empower people to make their own choices, to be active, uh, particularly when it comes to housing issues, but that's applicable across the board. One last question. So my, my last question is, is going back to the zoning process and density and whatnot. So, you know, do you think that Boston and other municipalities that have stringent zoning policies, do you think that they are purposely restricting supply and I see one benefit of that is certainly in situations like we are today, where we are in somewhat of a economic economic turmoil and the housing market is a little rough. You know, does it ultimately help save some of that from or protect us from some of these economic downturns versus build, 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 similar to kind of cities like Chicago? where they have very, very little uh, in terms of, you know, zoning and, and well, they don't little in terms of zoning, meaning they allow a ton of density. So but you're all you also see much more significant hits when changes in the economy occur. So, you know, is there a balance that needs to take place or do you feel that cities like Boston are doing it the right way because of that? I don't know who wants to answer. <laughs> Yeah, so, you know, part of it's thinking about what the zoning rules are and how those are affecting the market. So we focus primarily on these restrictions on density, you know, bans on multifamily buildings, really large minimum lot sizes. Those aren't directly controlling sort of the amount of new housing. They're really controlling the price of new housing, right? If you can only build single family houses on large lots, you're basically putting kind of a floor under the, the price of housing that can get built. 
And so, you know, that's a particularly destructive thing to do because it just makes housing more expensive, right? And, you know, if you go far enough out to places that still have land, you can build a subdivision relatively quickly. It's just that it's going to be really, really expensive. I think actually the best thing that local governments could do to kind of avoid getting caught in market cycles is to shorten the process of building, right? If, if it takes you 15 years to build an apartment building, you're going to finish the project in a totally different market than the one you started. And that makes planning really hard. How many units do you need? How do you price them? Do you build you know, rental or ownership? That all depends on the market circumstances. And planning is really hard when you have this very long process and you don't even know how long it's going to take. Right. So well, yeah. development cycle are less likely to get caught up in sort of, you know, a ton of permits that are underway and big projects and market crashes and you wind up with vacancies that sit around forever. Make it shorter. And that keeps you from getting into, you know, a, an overbuilding glut at the wrong time. Definitely. We are huge fans of the work that you're both doing. And if there's any way that the real estate addicts me data array can be helpful for our listeners, let us know. Really enjoyed talking to you guys today. And uh, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having us. Pleasure to uh, chat with you guys. And if anyone wants to uh, get in touch with either of you, how do they how do they do that? So my email address um, should be on the website. So I'm jschutz at brookings.edu. Um, and if you guys are Twitter addicts, you should be following me on Twitter. That's Jenny underscore Schutz. I'm on Twitter, just at Josh Zakem. Uh, my email is josh at housingforwardma.org. Certainly check out our website housingforwardma.org. Cheers. Thanks everyone for uh, listening, rating, reviewing, and for sharing. Take care, everybody. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Appreciate it.